when Jane Campbell was mayor and invited the region to dream about Cleveland's lakefront nearly 20 years ago, I remember being stunned by the number of people willing to give up beautiful summer evenings to head downtown to brainstorm. On this episode of This Week in the CLE, we'll be asking the question about whether that energy around the lake can be recreated today. Welcome to the podcast discussion of the news by the reporters and editors at Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, here with co-host Laura Johnston, who could not be more excited about a dramatic new proposal for getting people near the lake. Laura, how about teeing this story up? Okay, this is a huge deal, and if it comes to fruition, it will transform Cuyahoga County's lakefront. Executive Armin Budish wants to create a Lake Erie Trail across the 30 miles of coastline, all the way from Bay Village to Euclid. In some cases, the trail would follow the groundbreaking model of Euclid, which is building a three-quarter mile path over private land. In other places, they would use striped bike lanes on roads. There are a whole bunch of other pieces to this plan, including studying bridges, adding bike and pedestrian access on county roads that lead up from the south of the lake. They're even talking about moving I-90. You know, I should point out, Laura, you wear many hats here, and you've spent the last two years coordinating our rockthelake.com website, which focuses on the lake, so you know more about it than anybody. Do you think that this proposal is actually realistic? That's a good question. I don't I don't think anybody thinks it's realistic in the immediate future. But, you know, County Planning Director Mike Dever came in to talk to us uh, with Armin Budish and they said, you know, if you don't plan for it, it'll never happen. He kept using the towpath as an example of an audacious idea that took decades to make reality. And the towpath still isn't totally finished. So I think the Metro Parks have really reinvigorated interest in Lake Erie over the last couple of years. And it's refreshing that instead of complaining that our lakefront isn't as great as Chicago's, we're talking big game about making it better. So they do understand the challenges. They know that when you're dealing with private landowners, it all takes as one to to stop you. How do they propose to to get the private landowners along the lake to cooperate? That is another big question. But there, and, and it's huge in, in across the lake because 70% of the lakefront is about privately owned. That's an estimate. Um, and there's some really nice houses on the lake, some with these amazing landscape backyards. I'm sure they're not going to want to share their property with the rabble. But let's look at the Euclid plan, um, which is all across private land for three quarters of a mile. Uh, Euclid offered to shore up cliffs, some of which were losing 13 inches of land a year to erosion in exchange for public easement at the lake level. So these folks cannot see uh, from their property. They won't be able to see the people on the path because it's way lower. And they in turn got rid of all of these, this concrete crap and just all sorts of stuff at the lake level. They even got some private access stairs down. So that's costing the city 12 to $15 million for this three quarter mile path. So another big issue for the county is the cost. You got to multiply 15 million by 30 miles. Also, if they want to move I-90 away from the lake to create more land at Gordon Park, that's going to be another $200 million. You're going to need a lot of support from citizens, plus the state and federal governments. It's always risky for a political leader to propose something like this because it's a it's a big dreamer, big thought kind of thing uh, that that people will criticize. You, you immediately get criticism. One of the disappointing aspects of this that, that does lend itself, I think, to some criticism is that it's not complete, that part of this trail would be sharing the road, basically, with cars. So how does that work? So that's what the drawing looks like right now. And remember, we're at the earliest stage. This is just the big idea phase. And they're going to plan to do a year-long study, $500,000 study, that would get a lot of citizen input um, and study feasibility in a bunch of places. So um, it's not like we have a done deal. But I agree. It's a huge downside. Lake Road in Bay Village is supposed to work as the path, but I bike that a lot in the summer and I ride on a concrete gutter. There is no room for a bike lane there. Um, so, but if enough people come out during this public process and they say, we want a full on path and they convince people, then maybe they can do that. You went out this week to to prepare for today's story because they came in and talked to us last week under embargo to take photos of the, the places that would be most affected now, the vantage points and the, the specific target zones. What did you see when you went out there? Yeah, there's three spots that they're looking at to do this Euclid plan on first. And they thought they'd be more the most likely because they have the most eroding shoreline. Um, so there's a bunch of apartments on the Gold Coast of um, Lakewood. You know, 
they might be in for the K and D uh, apartments in Euclid. We're all about it. Um, they signed on early. And then the two other places are from about 185th all the way to the Easterly Sewer District plant um, in Cleveland. So that's on the east side. And they have a lot of century old homes there. They have private clubs that own lakefront land. It's going to be interesting what they think. But if you look at the cliff, you can tell that it really needs shoring up. And, and you know, with the high water levels, it's just been a big issue, erosion. So they might be interested. And and it would give them something to do. They can't bike on the, the lake right now. It'd be great for those people that live there to be able to do that. Well, you got to give a salute to, to Buddha. She's been under a lot of uh, controversy with the investigations and things going on. But in the past few weeks, he's emerged with some big ideas, opioid spending and this. And it's nice to see some some possible movement. Before we bring in some others for discussion, you had another lake-related piece this week with a staggering number in it. The story was about the number of balloons, or I guess pieces of balloons, found during Great Lakes beach cleanups over three years. What was the number? What does it mean to anybody who lets a balloon go up in the sky? And if I do, am I an environmental criminal? Totally. I'm going to arrest you. Um, 18,000 balloon pieces. And that was from 2016 to 2018, um, just on Great Lakes cleanups held by the the Alliance with the Great Lakes, and they don't do every beach, so the number is going to be a lot higher. That includes uh, mylar balloons, which never break down, and latex, which uh, eventually does, does, but it takes years. Um, so there's a University of Michigan researcher who started in June to keep track of balloon pollution with an online survey anybody can fill out. Um, they're hoping that they get state legislators to ban balloon launches. No one's in Ohio is working on that right now, but the idea is to focus on stopping organized launches like the Indy 500 with tens of thousands of balloons. We're not talking a one-off from a carnival when it accidentally slips off my kid's wrist because that's going to happen. Yeah, it's pretty clear that the the idea of the balloon launch has really outlived its usefulness. It's time to talk some politics. Let's go get Jane and Seth. We're joined by politics editor Jane Cahoon and chief political reporter Seth Richardson. Hi, guys. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, the clear winner for the politics story of the week was Democratic presidential debate Tuesday in Westerville. The eyes of the political universe were upon us, and for once, the candidates talked about some of the issues we care about here in flyover country. Seth, what'd they talk about? Uh, They talked about a lot of things. Uh, For what I was looking for, though, they actually did talk about the economy for uh, kind of an extended period of time at least more than they have in any of the other debates. Uh, We got a little bit of discussion on trade. Um, Obviously, they talked about, you know, kind of sandwich between Ukraine and healthcare. Um, I I was intrigued because, you know, Andrew Yang was actually the first candidate to bring up the economy, and he sort of found uh, this, this formula for what I'm surprised more candidates don't do, and that's when they're asked these really boring questions on the debate stage. They just talk about whatever they want. And he talked about, you know, Lordstown, the economy. Or I'm sorry, he didn't talk about Lordstown. He talked about Donald Trump's win in 2016 and the economy. And I do think that was a smart move. Um, One of the more disappointing things, though, was while they started to have this really robust discussion on trade, we're talking about trade deals and labor in Mexico and jobs going overseas and GM. And then all of a sudden, uh, and this is really more on CNN and the New York Times moderators, uh, but all of a sudden they pivot to talking about a wealth tax. Well, a wealth tax is kind of a niche issue, so to speak, right? Um, So I think we could have had a bigger discussion on that. Uh, We did talk about uh, the shooting in Dayton. Well, at least the shooting in Dayton came up. Uh, talked about gun control a little bit, uh, but really that that conversation was also kind of confined to uh, whether the candidates supported a mandatory or a voluntary buyback of assault-style weapons. Well, hold on there, because we're going to be talking a bit uh, in a minute about Ohio-based gun discussions. Did any candidate say anything about guns that stood out to you individually? Individually, no, but... There, there was kind of this interesting split between the two, I thought, um, between kind of two factions, right? You have Beto coming out being sort of the um, the, uh, the, the quote-unquote standard bearer, I guess, saying, no, these are mandatory buybacks. Yes, I am coming for your AR-15, that sort of thing. And then you had basically the rest of the field saying, we are so close to getting something done universal background checks, red flag laws, uh, uh, limiting magazine capacity that – why would we cloud the subject with something like this where you are saying, yes, I'm going to take 
your guns because that has always been the rallying cry of the pro-gun lobby, the pro-gun kind of activists is the government is coming to take your guns. So that was incredibly interesting to see because I think most of these candidates probably do would support a mandatory buyback program if it works. But but isn't there a little bit of delusion there that we're so close to getting something done? I mean, we've had so many massacres, so many calls to get something done. What we're going to be talking about in Ohio in a minute is more evidence of that. I'm just surprised that in, in the American consciousness right now, guns are an issue, a big issue. I mean, if, take off the fringe, Second Amendment, I can do whatever I want. Take off the fringe, nobody should have a gun. There are a lot of people concerned about how much gun violence is going on. Forget the massacres. Look what's happening in the cities where it's hundreds of people in each city a year getting gunned down or, um, or shot, not necessarily killed. Not, not one original idea. I mean, think about it. If, if I'm really concerned about gun violence in America, in, especially in the cities where people are getting mowed down. Don't you think I should speak to the voters that care about that? Cleveland residents are petrified of this. Petrified of this. This is something that's traumatizing their children. Not a single idea on how you're going to stop that. And universal gun checks won't stop that. That's not what that's targeted as. I'm just surprised you get together, these nattering nabobs, debate after debate, not a single original idea. Well, I think that part of that is because you have had these ideas out there for so long, right? Universal background checks are supported by 90% of the population, like including a majority of Republicans, including a majority of gun owners. When they say they're so close to getting something done, what, what that in theory means is, hey, if we win the presidency and we win the Senate, the filibuster's gone, right? That's I, The writing's on the wall with that one. It's, it's basically gone. If we get the presidency, we get the Senate. The Democratic Party is in a place right now where you don't necessarily have to cater to a lot of the, you know, the kind of old school blue dog Democrats. Even Joe Man- – I mean Joe Manchin has been pushing the background check bill in Congress for – what since Sandy Hook at the very least, right? Probably even before that. Um, when, when you look at problems with uh, inner city violence, you know, that is you – know, does that become a – is that a gun issue uh, singularly? Like is that just a matter of getting guns off the streets or is that part of a bigger plan where it's, hey, we need to invest in these communities to give people hope so they're not turning to gang it, violence and the like? It's both, but let's face it. Over the last 10 years – Guns have proliferated. I mean, and the kid that we had the photo of standing on the mayor's driveway with the gun in his Mm. pocket, universal background checks wouldn't have stopped him from having a gun. You're not hearing it. I mean, DeWine addressed it a little bit when he was here. It's that that idea that a very small number of people cause the big percentage of gun violence in cities. And if you can catch them and lock them up, you'll reduce gun violence. But they've been talking about that now for a while, really haven't seen results. Well, I think that's where the candidates kind of came up with the voluntary buyback option, right? Because it's not, they're not saying it's just for uh, assault style weapons, right? Those are kind of the, you know, those are the quote unquote big scary guns that everybody sees, right? But they mentioned, you know, doing voluntary buybacks for handguns because most violence is committed with handguns. Right. And I think that is a, you know, it's a concept that's been tried in other countries. You know, Australia did it um, when they wanted to get a lot of guns off the street. And it was, I, I, from everything I've ever read about it, it's been wildly successful. So them pushing, uh, I, I think that is kind of a novel idea, especially in America. So there's 12 candidates on the stage. Was it hard for them to stand out on any issue? Do you think, do you see anyone rising from the pack in these debates? I mean, yeah, 12 candidates on stage is just too much. You only put 11 football players on a field at a time. I don't know why you think that, you know, if the Dolphins can't make it work with 11 football players. I don't know why – I don't know what compels people to think that 12 people on a stage at any given time yell, yelling at each other, not necessarily even at each other, but just having to respond quick fire to these questions is really going to be any kind of super productive discussion. You had a couple people – I think – you know, Elizabeth Warren obviously did pretty well just because um, she got the most speaking time. She was attacked the most and probably responded to – I thought she's responded the, to the attacks pretty well. I think Joe Biden did poorly but didn't like – not in like the gaff sense, right, mm-hmm. where, oh, he said something that's going to screw up. He was just kind of absent. You know, he didn't really see him a lot. Uh, same goes for Bernie Sanders who – this was supposed to be his triumphant return after the heart attack and um, not, nowhere to really be seen all that much. Um, Pete Buttigieg did 
pretty well, I think, all things considered, did the best with his time. Kind of, we're used to seeing, you know, nice old Mayor Pete, the folksy guy from South Bend, Indiana. And, I mean, he went on the attack against a couple of people, and um, I thought he did it quite well, especially when he uh, questioned, you know, Beto has been kind of going after him, and he sort of, you know, retorted, like, I'm not going to take uh, lessons and courage from you mm-hmm. of all people. It's like, all right, then, all right, you know, all right, all right stop, though. I mean, <laughs> but getting, getting to the gist of Lars' question, yeah. you got 12 people on the stage. They're not exciting. No, Nobody is getting excited by them. And as you talk to people, I was talking to Zach Reed, the 40, former city council person last night, and, and, and on this idea of is there a candidate out there somewhere that has said, I'm not going through that. That's a bunch of nonsense, a bunch of people, 12 people on a stage that will emerge at the last minute. You know, there was a poll I think I read about that if Michelle, this isn't going to happen, but if Michelle Obama stepped forward now, she would immediately become a front runner in New Hampshire. People repeatedly, including me, bring up Sherrod Brown. Sherrod Brown's a great foil to Donald Trump. He's a guy that has always been true to who he is. He'd be a terrific Democratic presidential candidate except that he's not. Is there someone who's smart that's, that could step up at the end? Or is that just the pipe dream of Democrats who are desperate to have a candidate that they can rally behind? Yeah, no, that's a pipe dream. At this point. <laughs> uh, so Zach Reed's not going to run that, for I president? Mean, he, he could, but here's the thing. Like, you know, it, it, the candidates started getting in basically in, like, you know, last December, right? That was when you started having people come in. And by around what let's call it march right whenever someone was coming in it's just like oh my god another one like another one another one so if somebody really came in right now right at the very last minute how are they going and i don't know who that person would be i'm hard pressed to think about someone who could really coalesce everyone around them except like you said maybe michelle obama who has shown zero interest in it but but you weren't like jane and i remember this you guys don't but jimmy carter came out of nowhere back in 76 came out of nowhere picked up on the malaise of a country based on the nixon years and the ford pardon and and galvanized attention i mean he was a nobody you'd never heard of is there somebody like that that could do that today? Well, I think why Jimmy Carter kind of came out of nowhere can uh, really sort of be attributed to the Iowa caucus, right? Because he came in and sort of surprisingly got, uh, I think he actually got second place in that caucus to uh, none of these candidates, but I'm, I'm not sure. Someone can fact check me on that in the comments. Um, now, since candidates have seen that sort of playbook before, right, they think, they think, oh, I can get in this, and if I do well in Iowa, then, oh, I have a chance. Well, now that you have that in the back of your mind, that's why you do have these kind of, you know, C and D tier candidates who hop in. You know, Wayne Messam is still in this race. Do you know who Wayne Messam is? He's the mayor of Miramar, <laughs> Florida, and no one knows who Wayne Messam is because he's the mayor of Miramar, Florida, but he had that kind of thought in there. So I think since people have seen the playbook, the Jimmy Carter playbook, the Bill Clinton playbook kind of, you know, sort of same did the thing, same thing. Right that um, it, it's sort of hard to make a, uh, you know, a surprise entrance into the race. The closest we've had in, you know, my lifetime that I can recall is probably Rick Perry. And that didn't go well. You know, that the famous mm-hmm. oops on stage. <laughs> There's been talk that Michael Bloomberg is still waiting in the wings to jump in. And we all know how dynamic he is. And yeah, when I talk about galvanizing <laughs> yeah. the Democratic Party, he's not the face that comes to mind. Yeah, but he, on, on Sherrod Brown, um, Jennifer Rubin, the columnist uh, who writes for The Washington Post, just had a column saying, oh, it's such a shame that Sherrod Brown isn't in this. He's a meat and potatoes guy, you know. So... There Look, is talk about that. Sure, I don't know if he'll be drafted. Sherrod can be very difficult to deal with, but he's a genuine guy who has stood for the same thing for a long time. He's won handily in a state that is not super blue, if it's blue at all. Uh, and he just presents the right personality. And as we've said before, he has a wife who is enormously popular and, and would just seem like it's that kind of person. Look, he dropped out, so so he's not doing it, but it's just... 
you're not hearing people get excited about what we're seeing. Anyway, it's time to move on. Okay, so moving on. Chris mentioned we'd be talking about going on with Ohio and guns. So let's go. Jane, when Governor Mike DeWine visited last week to explain his alternative to universal background checks for gun sales, you asked whether he would support a referendum initiative for universal background checks. He said no because he was working with the legislator in good faith to get his alternative passed. This week we got news that, that his thoughts on that ballot initiative might not be relevant. Right. The group called Ohioans for Gun Safety, which has been circulating petitions for some time now, they're ramping their effort up. They are going to use more paid circulators. They've got the Ohio chapter of Moms Demand Action working with them now. And they got a big endorsement from Nan Whaley, the mayor of Dayton, who, as we said, her city is still healing from a mass shooting. So they... uh, that they're going full bore on this, uh, no matter what the governor's proposing or the legislature's doing. Mm-hmm. Could the, could these two initiatives be married together somehow? It, it, often when you have a ballot initiative, it stamps out a previous law. But if DeWine's package got passed, it's not really mutually exclusive with universal background checks. He's setting up a method by which you could go to the sheriff and check out your buyer. Is If the universal background checks bill gets passed, could that still exist, or would it just be a redundant thing? Well, you're making a big assumption that DeWine's package is going to be passed. As you know, <laughs> I'm skeptical about that. I don't think it's going to pass, at least in its full form. But if it did, I don't know. I can't see them joining together. I I can't see the legislature going for universal background checks. But you have to believe there would be demand for the sheriff's offices to do the background checks just like they would under DeWine's plan. So I I don't really know. Uh, How many signatures do they have so far and how many do they need? They have about 20,000 and they need about 133,000 and that would get it before the legislature. Then the legislature would presumably refuse to consider it, which would then trigger another round of signature gathering and they'd need another 133,000 to get it on the 2020 ballot. Different people or do they have to, can they go back to the same people? I think they would have to get different people. No, but no, don't, no. I, I no? Thought, no, I thought basically you have to go out and get the signatures again. I don't. Okay, I don't, time for another fact check. <laughs> I yeah, we'll do not check. know the answer for sure. So this is for the 2020 ballot, which is the president, which has the huge turnout. Does that mean that because polls have shown that Ohio voters very much favor this, that it has a much greater chance of passing than in one of those off-year elections when only special interests show up? Absolutely. I would think that this is, uh, and as Seth mentioned, you know, 90% of people favor this and over 80% of gun owners. I mean, I was talking to one of our conservative colleagues the other day, ultra conservative guy. He says he has no problem with background checks. So, All right. No conversation with Jane is complete without a reference to the $900 million bailout of the state's nuclear industry that was forced upon us by the greedy legislature. As we've discussed (laughs) repeatedly, a group is trying to put that matter in front of voters and is collecting the signatures needed to do so. That group has been harassed pretty mercilessly by the anonymous pro-bailout forces. That led to a pretty big court ruling. Yes, a federal judge in Columbus ruled late last Friday uh, that they could have an additional 14 days that uh, he would hold off enforcement of that provision that requires them to disclose the the circulators. And they say that's what's led to their people being harassed because they have their names and addresses and they're following them, et cetera, et cetera. But the bigger issue is time, right? I mean, so they're also arguing that the state sets unfair limits on the time deadline for con- collecting signatures. Did the appeals court say anything about that? Uh, the judge has not ruled on that matter yet. They, Yeah, they want the full 90 days to, to circulate the petitions. They just submitted some briefs the other day, but we haven't heard from the judge on that well, yet. Well, and, and we, we talked about this last week. I mean, th- there is a basis for this. Because they couldn't start collecting the signatures until the attorney general approved the summary language, they lost 38 of those 90 days. So they got less than two-thirds of the required time. 
that's correct. Yeah, so, so I mean, how would a court not see that? I is, mean, he looked. The judge looked favorably upon their previous argument that their First Amendment rights were being infringed upon. So, all I, right. I just think it's going to be interesting in 2020 if we have the presidential election, we have the bailout, we have guns on the ballot. It's going to be big for Ohio. All right. Thanks, you guys, for uh, for stopping by, and we'll keep looking for the insightful work that comes from you. And Seth, we got to plug the flyover. You missed the the chance earlier. <laughs> so, well, I knew you would do it. Seth, so. Seth puts together a free newsletter covering the issues of the Heartland states that will decide the election. You can sign up for it free at cleveland.com/newsletters. Coming up in a moment, some thoughts on the state of the city addressed by Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson. You're listening to this week in the CLE. We welcome reporters Mary Kilpatrick and Bob Higgs to This Week in the CLE. Good to have you back in our little podcast studio. Hi. Good morning. Frank Jackson has given 14 State of the City speeches since he became mayor more than anyone else, and I've been to or watched all but maybe one of them. For the most part, they've been serviceable speeches without much flair. Four years ago, though, I think it was four years ago, he delivered one that was pretty electrifying, ending it by describing Cleveland as a successful city that would not be a great city unless people in the audience did their part. It's a theme that he has repeated often in the years since. For the second time in 14 years, though, last week, he delivered another speech that everyone I talked with thought was incredibly good, surprisingly good. So, Bob, let's go through it a bit. First, his overall theme was about the disparity between rich and poor. Not not a normal subject for most mayors, as they describe the state of the city. How do you think he did in demonstrating that theme? He went right at the core issue here, where he, statistically, Cleveland looks much better than it did just even within a few years ago. Its economy's improving, more people are working, uh, there's more money in this town, but a lot of neighborhoods, and this has been a focus of the mayor for the last few years, have not seen any of that wealth transfer into investment in those neighborhoods. And he statistically showed how the top end of the income, much like the rest of the country, is growing and more having more control over that, while the bottom end of the income people, they're falling behind. So one time in the speech, Jackson launched into a series of statistics, right? The gist was that Cleveland's doing okay in some areas, not so much in others. What was the point that he was making? That was part of his argument. If you listen to the mayor for any time, at some point you're going to hear him say, we will not truly be a great city until everybody benefits in the mm-hmm. prosperity. Well, that, but, but, I, but that part of the speech was really his in-your-face to John Penny, right? I mean, right. John Penny made a speech a year ago. It's weird that he didn't do this in the last state of the city, but a year and a half ago, John Penny stood up and said, Cleveland is dead last. And he used a bunch, of, a bunch of statistics that portrayed Cleveland in a very bad light. And even though Jackson didn't mention him, it wasn't just me. I heard other people saying, yeah, that was his response to John Penny, that we're not nearly as bad as he portrayed. No, these these numbers were really a rebuttal of that. One of the stats he talked about was among large cities economically, our, we're in the top five for growth right now, uh, ahead of places like Boston and Chicago. And it's it's a misnomer to think that Cleveland is not a relevant place, but you've got this population that is not benefiting yet. There was the one part of the speech where I think people started to have their eyes glaze over. The rest of it, not, but he, he might have gone a little bit too long on the numbers. Let's get back to the disparities. He started early with his mentions of what he calls the beast, the greedy machinery of Cleveland that profits from having people in poverty and the, dis- the difference between rich and poor. With each segment of his speech, as he talked about neighborhood development and job development, he kept bringing it back to the beast has he talked to you when you've talked to him in the past about that that idea of the beast he's never used the the beast that terminology uh but he has talked about the concept and the the day after the speech when i was talking to him he pointed out that if you're a developer you want to throw up a a new uh high-rise apartment building someplace like ohio city or downtown it's not that hard to go out and find a bank that'll get on board with you on some of the financing. But if you're trying to go into one of those neighborhoods, it's very difficult to get financing at all. Um, the only places where they've had real success with that is through his neighborhood initiative where he got some banks to sign on for this $65 million investment. But if you're just coming into town and you're looking at where you're going to get your money back on your investment, you're not likely to go to, say, Buckeye. Um, right. But he specifically demonized people who profit from poverty, right? 
he was attacking the system. He said, for too long, we've looked at economic growth and wealth as the, the benchmark of success. And the people who have achieved that have achieved success for themselves, but we can't look at that economic success for them as economic success for the whole city. And, and to do so sells out these neighborhoods where they're not getting the benefits of that growth and prosperity to the upper end. Look, he's a really strategic thinker. So the fact that he does this now is meaningful. There's a timing issue here, right? He gives yes. this speech right before what's going to happen. Well, and he had, I mean, in some respects, they must have been giddy because he had a very large crowd in public auditorium. They were live streaming it, but the people he was talking to very specifically. Yeah, but what so I'm he's talking to about tee is tee it up for Cleveland Rising, right? And 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 challenging them. Look, this is part and parcel of who he is. No one has spent more time in public office advocating on behalf of people without means, and he wants people who will, who now align with his cause to be wary of those who will seek to derail the Cleveland Rising process to maintain their profits. He also wants the people who donate their time to this, and we're talking as many as 800, 900 people, not to feel betrayed. If they get together in good faith, they come up with ideas for the future, and then some sinister forces out there that he's talking about, this beast, uh, take it away. It's kind of what makes him unique as a mayor. Well, and he was very clear. When I talked to him the the day after the speech, he was not attacking Cleveland Rising in any way. It was a challenge to them to take on the real issue here, not just to focus on that wealth and and encouraging them take on the harder fight here and and look to expand prosperity throughout throughout these neighborhoods as well as to the city as a whole. Well, we can't end the discussion on the speech without talking about what the mayor said about his family. So what was that? He, before he launched into the, the main body of his speech, he did take a few minutes just to sort of lay down, I'm not going to deal with my family's issues. And, and he said, I, I've never lied to you. It was sort mm-hmm. of a reinforcement of what he said before, or he said he never interfered and he, he stands by all of that. Mm-hmm. He actually said, I love you. He, he said, I more. love all of you. Uh, I've worked hard to be in a position where I can say these things and where I can take this leadership role, but I don't live in a bubble. But right. which, which is the one part of his speech that's preposterous. When you're right. the mayor of a major American city, you actually do live in a bubble. Oh, and right. you, and you, not, you ran for the privilege of living in a bubble. Well, and there aren't very many jobs out there that are like this. Uh, there is no time when he is not the mayor of Cleveland. Something happens in the middle of the night. He's on the job as mayor of Cleveland. His phone's going to ring. He's going to have to address it. it. He's in the public eye all the time, so... Yeah, I'm disappointed that for a guy who has spent so much time trying to deal with gun violence, if he if he sat down to have an honest conversation about how it's tormenting him that this is now in his family, this this monster he's been battling all these years, it could be pretty moving and actually could have an effect. But his idea that it's my family, I don't talk about my family, you know, it's kind of ridiculous. Well, in some ways that. I recognize his, how he values privacy, but in some ways that becomes a barrier that does get in the way you of the, don't of the get whole to conversation. Value privacy right. when you run for mayor, you, you give away you your right to it. privacy. Right. All right, let's stay on the idea of trying to battle poverty and poverty-related issues. Mary, you wrote a story about Metro Health committing one million dollars to try C for a job training center, but it's not your run-of-the-mill job training. What makes it different? So it's imagined as a neighborhood hub. You know, in addition to job training, it has a grocery store with fresh fruit, food, legal counseling. It has a community kitchen. There's financial literacy training. Uh, there'll be a center that to provide instruction on how to navigate the internet, how to write a resume, and even interview for a job. So is this Metro Health's way of lining up qualified workers for vacancies at the hospital? What what kind of jobs are people training for? Certainly, potentially, uh, people can receive training in healthcare, but there's also training in public safety and information technology. This has a big, big hunk of name, right? The Institute of something or other. But basically, it's part of the hospital. It's being set aside for job training. Yeah, actually, they call it the Institute for Hope is the acronym. It's called the Institute for Health Opportunity Partnership and 
uh, empowerment. And within that institute, there's this Tri-C Access Center, which will provide uh, academic and job training to folks who are, are looking to better themselves. All right. We have yet another anti-poverty story to talk about. I don't know if you, any of you ever drive down Woodland Avenue on the east side, but there's a housing project over there that has got to be one of the most forbidding places I've ever seen. I can't imagine growing up there and coming out of it with any kind of optimistic disposition. It's almost like the place, it's called Woodhill Homes, was designed in such a way to tell poor people that, that you don't matter. And it's just a horrible place. It's pushing 80 years old, it's in bad shape. Many of the nearly 500 apartments don't have showers, some barely have heat. Bob, now comes word that the city wants to do the right thing and get rid of it. They want to turn, it in, turn the whole site inside out and replace the housing. You described it well. The other day I referred to it as a gulag. I mean, it's, it's, this, horrible. it's this collection of, of antiquated buildings that were, by standards today, could never be a comfortable place to live. There's fencing around it. There's limited access to the site. So it's almost like they're penned, people are penned in there. And, and they're now taking steps that would lead to dispersing the population through the neighborhood into uh, other housing and then tearing this down and replacing it with something more up to date that'll be more inviting and more accessible to the neighborhood. So what happens to the people who live there while it's under construction and will they be able to come back and will there be as many apartments? They probably could come back, but the idea is uh, to move them to something permanent so they won't want to come back. Okay. Uh, there's a about five sites around that neighborhood where there's going to be new housing that goes in. And the intention is you get that new housing in and it becomes permanent homes for residents. And then once they have cleared the site out into these permanent homes, they'll raise those buildings and and replace that. And they're going to run some new streets through there so it'll feel more like neighborhood rather than this fenced off development and put new housing in there presumably they'll be able to repurpose all of that property and it's it's many acres it's mm -hmm. it's a very large site I, I can't imagine even in the original design that anybody saw what they did as beneficial to the people living there i can't imagine there was any time in history where there this wasn't anything but a, a kind of a mean cruel place to live so the planning director was was part of the conversation that you reported and he talked about trying to to build it in such a way that would inspire hope in people trying to turn their lives around. What does that mean? Well, part of the, part of the dispersal, part of the strategy behind that is uh, th there are mixed levels of income in that surrounding neighborhood. It runs all the way down to uh, Shaker Boulevard, runs north a little bit above Woodhill and uh, Woodland Avenue. And a lot of single-family homes, uh, some duplexes, and the thinking is if you take the people out of these awful places and you work them into other housing, and there's quite a bit available, they'll be mixed in with other people who have different levels of income, and they'll be able to look to their neighbors and draw inspiration from their neighbors that there is a way to climb out of some of this poverty. So speaking of improvements and things not gloomy, let's talk about trees. Everybody loves trees. And this week, Frank Jackson said he has some news about trees, right? Yes, there has the trees are a big part of the focus of trying to make Cleveland a sustainable city. Uh, reducing carbon footprint, improving quality, uh, quality of life. And on Wednesday, the mayor announced that the city uh, will be committing up to a million dollars every year to plant additional trees to help restore some of the tree canopy that has disappeared over the years. The announcement came at the 10th anniversary gathering for the mayor's sustainability summit, which happened in 2009. Uh, the atmosphere over there for this, this 10th anniversary celebration seemed pretty excited, pretty happy. Uh, Jackson is claiming that there have been a bunch of successes over the past decade. So what are they? Well, uh, one of the big ones they point to is there, there was an effort to reduce the carbon footprint of the city as a whole, and emissions in Cleveland are down 23% over this 10-year period. Their goal is to reduce it by 80% by 2050. Um, and it's, it's done incrementally in small things, but that, that reduction means the air is cleaner. At the same time, the economy is growing faster, so we're, our economy in the city is producing more using less uh, 
carbon, uh, having a lower emissions. They've made improvements to water quality in the river through all kinds of efforts. Uh, and to the lake, they're f focused on trying to make recycling work, even though the cost of recycling keeps going up. And they're trying to tackle transportation issues. Transportation right now is the biggest emission creator. And something like 70% of the people who go to work drive solo in their own cars. They're trying to find ways to tackle that, promoting rapid transit, bicycling, walking. Scooters. Scooters, shared <laughs> mobility, got a big plug. Uh, so they're, they're still optimistic and looking forward, but they can point to some successes where they've, they've improved the environment here. Okay, one more before you two go. Mary, you covered an election issue that's pretty unusual, a grassroots effort to change the form of government in Cleveland Heights. What's the deal? So right now in Cleveland Heights, the way the government works is people elect seven at-large council people who then among them, amongst themselves pick out a city manager who is basically the person who keeps the trains running on time uh, in City Hall. Uh, it's They describe the relationship like uh, a corporate board uh and a CEO as the city manager. Well, there have been grumblings for several years about whether or not they want to change the form of government. People are dissatisfied. And the reason why they're dissatisfied is kind of up for debate. Uh, the different factions have different opinions about that. Uh, so a couple of years ago, the Cleveland Heights uh, City Council put together this commission to review its charter to try to decide whether or not they should move to an elected mayor form of government, which would be, you know, a directly elected mayor elected every four years full time. The Charter Review Commission ultimately, after something like a year and a half of deliberation, decided not to move to this directly elected mayor form of government. Well, there were a group of citizens who sat in on pretty much every single Charter Review Commission meeting. And in those Charter Review Commission meetings, they became convinced that Cleveland Heights needed to move to this elected mayor form of government. And when the uh, Charter Review Commission ultimately decided to stick with the current form of government, they felt like they weren't being listened to. So they went out and they put an issue on the ballot to move to a uh, elected mayor form of government. So basically, Cleveland Heights is trying to decide whether or not to reinvent its form of government. And it is ugly. Um, you know, I should note, I've lived there for 23 years, actually longer than any of the four people that came in to talk to us about this issue. Um, and, and this is such a Cleveland Heights kind of battle. It's just, it, it defines this community. You know, that, that Charter Review Commission, as you said, it met for months, and then it didn't do what people asked them to do. And these, then a couple of school teachers say, you know what, let, 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 let's put it on the ballot. But getting at the ugliness, that's kind of a surprise for Cleveland Heights. The, the people that are fighting this, which, you know, it's a lot of the government people trying to preserve their jobs. You know, they, they've sent out postcards saying, let's keep partisan politics out of our decisions. Well, you know, it's pretty much a one-party town. There are some Republicans around, but there's really no partisanship. And they keep trying to make it sound like if you have an elected mayor, politics will rule the day, whereas you have an elected council. It just, it's, it's, been, it's been vicious and kind of mean-spirited. And, and as they, they noted when they came in, the council did something that was pretty astounding in July. They voted to extend the contract of the city manager and allow her to consider this vote, if they change government, to be a termination that gives her severance, which the pro-change people said, you're inducing her to leave and creating a rift in your own city. And and we had a city councilwoman here. She really couldn't explain it. Well, and one of the big things that the no side is arguing, arguing the vote no side um, is arguing, is that this will create uh, a lot of chaos in Cleveland Heights City Council or in C Cleveland Heights City Government. And what you're saying, it seems like that chaos is self-induced. Well... I, I know that the council got themselves into a lot of trouble. Bob will remember this. He's lived there longer than I have, I think. They, two, three years ago, they negotiated a, um, a new, or they negotiated a consent decree with the EPA. Nobody knew they were doing it. They kept it completely secret behind closed doors until it was done. So the first you learned that this was coming was when they came out and said, we signed the deal. We can't change it. We couldn't talk about it because it was a negotiation. And here's what's going to cost you. Compare that to Lakewood or to the Northeast Ohio Sewer District or to Akron, where there were discussions in the public for, for long periods of time. The other issue that they, I think, got themselves in the trouble in 
we used to be a master meter community and the, the city ran the system into the ground. They did not invest in it. They didn't raise rates in the way to keep it going. And it got to the point where it, it was a disaster. They secretly tried to negotiate privatizing it, which in the People's Republic of Cleveland Heights, privatizing <laughs> is not going to happen. And, and then turned it over to the city. Well, you can't sit there and claim this is an efficient form of government when your one major utility w was to a point of financial ruin. You remember this. I, and we're paying for it now. We're, we're still paying for it. We're still paying old utility bills to pay off some of that debt, even though we're now attached to the city of Cleveland right. for water service. I, I think what you see is this arose out of great frustration in the leadership in City Hall. And in comparison and, to cities like Lakewood right. and Shaker Heights that seem to be doing much better. And, and then some of the actions that the people in City Hall have taken since then have, have had the opposite effect of what they'd hoped. They've just inflamed passions even more. We have community meetings once in a while in my neighborhood and the outrage that's there the feeling that they're not listened to is is incredible. Well, for such a liberal community, you think there'd be more openness in the government. Like I, I feel like for years we've had a really hard time getting answers sometimes yep. from mm -hmm. Cleveland Heights. A they're lot just, of residents would agree with well, you. The, yeah. the, the, the pro, uh, you know, uh, the pro-current government, uh, form of current government that they're uh, basically advocating that they are very open. They say they're very collaborative. They're say, they say that by having this uh, seven-person at-large council that they are very deliberative, very open. But obviously, citizens don't feel that way, or at least some citizens don't. <laughs> and reporters. The, yeah. Well, the sewer and water issues really did uh, surprise people because that because that's a pocketbook issue. Yeah, I mean, I think most residents feel that the services in Cleveland Heights are great. They do a great job with cleaning up. The, you know, we had the the microburst come through and tear down an ungodly number of gigantic trees, and the city moved really quickly to get that cleaned up. They did a great job. They do a great job with trash. Their housing inspection program keeps the housing stock good. What what these people are arguing is there's no vision beyond just being a bedroom community and the South Euclid's of the world are moving along. A, 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 the biggest example of that is the Severance Town Center. It's an enormous piece of land, the mm -hmm. former mall, and it's pretty moribund. There's very little there. Well, do you, so you guys think that it's going to pass? So in three weeks, they were able to gather 4,000 petition or uh, signatures for a petition to put it on the ballot. So there is a huge uh, sort of interest in, in this issue. Uh, you, when you drive through Cleveland Heights, there are as many say yes signs, maybe more say yes signs than say no signs. Oh, way more. Yeah. Way more. I don't know. It's, it's definitely um, an interesting issue and very polarizing. You know, I, I think people are very, very passionate about it, and I think it's dividing the community in a real way. I think it's going to win going oh, away big. by biggest percentage of anything we've had up there in years. Chris hit on a key point with the vision. In, mm -hmm. in my neighborhood, which is not far from Severance, is also not far from South Euclid, which put in that shopping center on Warrensville Road, mm -hmm. luring Walmart out. The, my neighborhood looks at that. They see Severance going into decay, and they have not seen decisive action from City Hall to try and, and keep the city competitive. Yeah. Thanks for the conversation, Bob and Mary. I'm sure we'll be talking about this again. Next up, we'll talk with federal courts reporter Eric Heisig on the eve of the big opioid trial. It's this week in the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Eric Heisig. Thank you for having me. So you've been scrambling the last couple of weeks to keep up with all of the developments as we get up to the beginning, which is now, of the big opioid trial. Lots of governments have sued the pharmaceutical companies and distributors, arguing that they are responsible, at least in part, for the opioid crisis. This week, the test case started with Cuyahoga County and Summit County as the plaintiffs. The jury is selected. There's a lot to unpack here, but let's start with how do Summit and Cuyahoga blame Big Pharma? What is their actual cause of action? So in the broadest sense, the, the cause of action is kind of twofold. The, the, these lawsuits, which there are more than 2,500 of them, Cuyahoga and Summit County, as you said, are basically trying to lay out the roadmap on how these other cases may go. And, and their case, as well as a lot of others, are basically saying manufacturers knew the risks of these 
opioid pain pills, these oxycodones, these hydrocodones. And, and they didn't do enough to actually say, hey, look, this is addictive. There's all these benefits to it, but they left out the fact that, you know, a lot of people could get hooked on these. The other part of this chain is distributors, the people that actually move pills from a warehouse to a pharmacy, to a doctor's office, where have you. And they're basically saying these large drug companies, which are some of the biggest in the world, including Ohio's Cardinal Health, uh, knew that there were suspiciously large amounts of pills going to places all over the state, all over the county, even the most rural areas. They didn't flag that to the DEA and say, hey, I think something's going on here. And the DEA didn't pick up on it either, but, but that's another story. But as we get closer, we've seen a bunch of the companies settle, providing tens of millions of dollars to the two counties. Even now, negotiation settlements are going on, um, or discussions for the settlements are going on. Is there a chance that everyone will settle and we will have no seven-week trial? There's always a chance. Uh, so right now, this is a, a thing very much in flux. You're, you're catching me recording this right as I got back from the courthouse, published a story along with other news outlets basically saying there's going to be a huge settlement conference tomorrow after a jury is picked. And by tomorrow, we mean Friday, where the judge is having CEOs from all these companies end up flying in and saying, you know, what can we do to hash this out? There's been reports of large scale settlements. Interestingly enough, though, there are six companies that are a part of this. Not every one of them has been part of these settlements so far, as far as what we can tell. One of the major companies, the ones you see on every corner of the on every street corner, Walgreens, uh, they have not been part of these negotiations. But four other of the drug company defendants, uh, activists or not activists, Teva Pharmaceuticals, McKesson, Amerisourceburg, and Cardinal Health, as well as Johnson and Johnson, which is out of the the lawsuit right now, you know, they've all been actively doing their part to try to see if we, they can just do a large-scale settlement, tens of billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars worth of pills. It, it shouldn't be a surprise when you're dealing with amounts as high as tens of billions of dollars that the defendants would be doing sleazy maneuvers to try and thwart the trial. But we have seen no end of last-minute strategies to try and block this thing, uh, all of which so far have been thwarted by the judge who keeps throwing it back and the appellate judges when they've gone beyond how about summarizing some of the the uh the high points of the maneuvers to block this trial i think i'm going to start with the most recent one because it gives everybody in this room the ability to say hey look journalism still matters um the Yay, drug journalism <laughs> journalism still matters <laughs> exactly because the drug companies both on wednesday and thursday asked the judge to delay this trial because of all the uh the stories that were being written about it the settlement negotiations that have been reported in in, in cleveland.com the wall street journal the washington post saying the jurors may have read this this may be a problem we've got to wait till they this isn't well, fresh in their minds anymore we know the jurors read it in cleveland.com because we're so massive and everybody reads cleveland.com <laughs> but but point taken but but that was the last that was the most recent one. There's been a series of other ones. There have been efforts to try to get the judge removed from the case, saying he's he's too biased towards wanting a settlement instead of a trial, that he's just tainted the whole thing. Uh, there's been efforts, and, and this isn't really the drug companies doing. This is more our uh, esteemed attorney general, Dave Yost, trying to halt the trial so he can pursue his claims in state court before the cities and counties, i.e. Cuyahoga and Summit, have the ability to take their case to trial as well. Uh, so it seems pretty clear that the counties will win, right? And if they do, what happens next? With all these other lawsuits that have been consolidated in federal court, what's the next step? Will they quickly settle based on what happens in trial? Or are we going to see a lot of trials? Uh, it, there, there is a plan for a lot of trials. And, and we're talking a complex set of litigation here. We're not just talking, you know, everything in federal court. There has been what are called tracks in federal court. So, you know, Cuyahoga and Summit go first. And uh, there's one in West Virginia set for next year. I mean, that is the track. But there are also, you know, a myriad of other ones that could go forward. So the plan right now is a lot of trials. But, you know, as we're seeing right now, pressure cookers uh, – seem to work. Um, and, and they're pushing a lot of people to the table. And, and I should have said this before, this is not just a settlement for Cuyahoga and Summit counties. This would be for all the lawsuits these companies face right now uh, across the world. Oh, wow. That's and, the current negotiation that the, they're all coming in tomorrow. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, everybody even locally are, is going to be involved in it. Uh, Armin Budish is expected to be there. At the same time, we're talking about the ability to actually there is a risk involved in this. I think you talked right a minute ago about the ability. Well, it's obvious that they're going to win. I mean, there is a lot of evidence that showed drug companies knew what they did and didn't do enough about it. But there is a reason that the 
cities and counties and states are willing to go to the table to actually try to negotiate this as well. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason that is, is there is always a risk of trial. They right. pick the 12 jurors today. Right. They pick 12 of them today from nine counties in, in, in the state. Does that mean that these people are going to see it the same way as some of our public officials? I don't think that's ever as clear cut as we'd like it to be. Right. The judge in this case, Dan Polster, made headlines for saying that he wants any settlements to be used to abate the abate the opioid crisis. Cuyahoga and Summit clearly are doing that. Cuyahoga gave us a plan last week we talked about. Summit's created a task force to do so. Are there any guarantees that the other governments will see it the same way or that they will just spend the money on whatever they want to? When you talk about governments, there it's kind of twofold right there. This all kind of harkens back to a, a a debate, an issue, something that happened with a massive settlement with tobacco in the late 90s. Um, tens and hundreds of billions of dollars went to the states. And the states, instead of using it to address kids who smoke cigarettes, ended up using it for roadways and other things they can do in the state budgets. That has really been the crux of the 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 heated discussions, the heated um, back and forth between the attorneys for the cities and the attorneys for the states. There is no guarantee. That's a long way of answering. There is no guarantee. But the hope is that these cities and states, according to their lawyers, would have the ability to use it for efforts that would basically combat opioid addiction locally instead of just giving it to the state and having everybody having it go everywhere, not just for opioids. All right. You, you mentioned that the, the pharma companies tried to remove Polster from the case and that the appeals court rejected that. But the appellate judges did say that he should stop giving interviews, that that they're not affirming that the, his decision to make public statements was a good one and that they would hope he would stop. He's a wild card. He's always been a wild card. So what do you expect to see from him in this trial? We're talking if this actually gets to trial, right? Because we're talking about a judge that has made very clear his preference to not have trials. And it's not just the opioid litigation. It's anything else. I I think what we're expecting to see is basically a judge that tries to keep this on time as quickly as possible. Um, if it actually gets a trial, and I keep saying that if at this point. Well, the trial's begun. They picked the jury. It's just you're, you're talking, do they get to opening arguments, Do they or opening statements and closing arguments and all the president, presentation of testimony. Absolutely. But the trial officially has started. It has started, and I think what he's going to do is basically he's not going to – I don't think he – any judge I think that would try to be – he would be as fair as possible to both sides. But what fair is – is really different depending on who you talk to. I don't think he's going to necessarily do anything that would make anybody want to settle this quicker. I think he's trying to have a fair trial for all around. That said, one of the major concerns that he has basically forced both sides to do is to limit their cases to 100 hours. So Cuyahoga and Summit County get 100 hours. Six defendants have to split 100 hours. And uh, all every indication we've received is that he's going to stick to that by any means necessary. So, you know, he says he wants a fair trial. Depending on who you ask, that may not be very fair. Wow. Obviously, we think this is a big deal in Northeast Ohio. So you're going to cover this full time with part time help from your colleagues. So what can our audience expect on Cleveland.com during the trial? Stories, stories, stories. <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to do our best to basically try to make this as comprehensive as possible. You, you referenced if I'm not going to be there, I'll have some of my esteemed colleagues covering for me and doing as much as I can. But what we would like to do is try to keep everybody up to date. I don't want to say up to the minute, but up to the last couple of hours to show what is going on as this trial progresses. What came out about the counties? What, you know, what did the medical examiners have to say about how this affected their operations? Are they seeing more cases involving child welfare? Uh, what are experts saying that the drug companies could have done better? What do the drug companies have to say for themselves? But at the same time, we're going to do our best to try to tell everybody as much as we can and keep that going for several weeks. And put it in context so we can all understand it, right? Absolutely. All right, Larrick, I'm looking forward to it. We'll talk with you as this goes on. In a moment, some analysis of the nominees for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Mike Norman. Good to be here. So you were a longtime rock writer before you came to life and culture editor here. And many of the bands that were nominated were in their heyday when you were writing. That makes you an expert. So what do you think of this year's nominees? I think it's a very eclectic and diverse group. Uh, There's 16 nominees. Um, Some of the best, in my opinion, include Nine Inch Nails, 
Soundgarden, one of the uh, holy trinity of grunge rock from the 90s, uh, first time nominee this year. Uh, T-Rex, which is a, a glam rock band from the early 70s led by a very influential rocker named Mark Bolin. Uh, we got Pat Benatar, Dave Matthews, Depeche Mode, Chris Quinn's favorite band, the Doobie Brothers. <laughs> it's not my favorite band, but there, there we go. they should be in. Uh, Whitney Houston, which is going to be a controversial pick for some, but a great pop singer. Uh, a couple of uh, metal bands, Judas Priest and Motorhead, led by the quintessential rocker Lemmy. Uh, MC5, uh, one of the uh, influential pre-punk bands of the late 60s out of Detroit. Uh, rapper Notorious B.I.G., uh, Rufus featuring Chaka Khan and Todd Rundgren and Thin Lizzy. Thin so, Lizzy, a one-hit wonder. It's a great song. The boys are back in town, but one-hit wonder. Yeah. So no Tina Turner, no Diana Ross, not a whole lot of women on this list. Yeah, there are three women on this list. Now, uh, last year there were three out of the 15 nominees which is about a 20% rate. And the year before that, there were 19 nominees and five were women, which is about a 26% rate. Uh, Troy Smith, one of our pop culture writers, uh, did a, a story this morning on cleveland.com in which he talked with uh, Greg Harris, the president and CEO of the Rock Hall, about this uh, gender disparity issue. And Harris insists that the Rock Hall has been making great strides, particularly over the past five years. And that when you're looking at drawing artists from a reservoir of the 50s and 60s, you're just sort of naturally going to get more men. Now, that's a little bit, I don't, not disingenuous, but it's a little too easy because there's a lot of women that you could nominate that they haven't before or didn't this year. Well, like, or, or as they did with the Beatles, right, where they get in as a group and then they get in individually, some of the major women of the past could get in individually. Like, like I said, Tina Turner and Diana Ross, but we're not getting those. I mean, it really, think about it. Tina Turner or Soundgarden. I know you're into Soundgarden, but most no. people, you ask them, name me one song, they're not going to know it. But everybody knows the hard rocking times of Tina Turner when she was a solo act. And there's many other examples that you could use too. Like say, for example, Dave Matthews Band over a band like No Doubt, led by Gwen Stefani, a great woman rocker or Soundgarden versus Sonic Youth one of the most influential bands of the 1980s in alternative rock led by Kim Kim Gordon or Todd Rundgren over Tina Turner Big Mama Thornton who originally did Hound Dog the uh, song that made Elvis Presley famous and who inspired Janis Joplin to do Ball and Chain not in the Hall of Fame so there's many many examples Kate Bush Emmylou Harris on and on I think they can do a better job I'm gonna agree with that but I also wanted to point out that when we talked about Troy's picks for who was going to be on this list he was right about a lot of them um, I feel like Troy is uh, has a genius for picking and handicapping who the Rock Hall is going to pick. He's looked at this over the past six or seven years and has sort of... He's got like a whole like theory. He's got a system. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he should play blackjack. He, um, he, But I really do feel like... I, I don't think anybody was talking about Dave Matthews' band. That was not on his handicap list. But um, I feel like the Rock Hall is finally getting to my generation. So I'm looking forward to more knowing more of these bands. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, when you look at a band like the Dave Matthews Band or even the Doobie Brothers, like the Doobie Brothers were a great party. I love the Doobie Brothers. Went to many concerts at Blossom Music Center in the 1970s. I'm dating myself here. And listened to a lot of great shows by the no, Doobie but, Brothers. But stop. But, but, but if you were a rock fan in the 70s, they were on. They were the FM radio band. I mean, I don't know anybody of our age group that didn't have the best of the Doobies album. And it was it was music everybody knew and loved. It's surprising to me that that there are other bands that have gotten in ahead of them. Well, you know, the Doobies are not a critical favorite band, so rock critics don't like the Doobies for a variety of reasons. It's not lyrically because of Michael McDonald. <laughs> well, maybe <laughs> that's it. But I mean, there's a classic post that Vice just put up. The 45 greatest Doobie Brothers songs, and they're all what a fool believes. Like it's the jokes. The joke is there. Um, but well, they were two bands, right? I mean, they were the band they were before Michael McDonald right. came in, and then he came in. He he brought taking it to the streets, which everybody loves. 
and then it became a very very not fm radio kind of band very kind of soft stuff i guess in later years they got back with their original band and went back to their roots but but he did for so for people who know him from that time i could see why they're thinking yeah yeah that's not a rock hall band correct it's almost like chicago when peter satira kind of took over the vibe of the band they became you know kind of soft and namby pamby but what i look at is a band like nine inch nails for example which did not have as much critical or uh, uh, commercial success as the doobie brothers although it had some sort of is a creative bridge it had a vision to it that the doobies never really aspired to they did not aspire to art they aspired to having fun and playing some great rock and out right which is what it's It's all right it's all right um you know i'm i i was around in the beginning of mtv and that was the pet benatar era she came she came to the fore just as mtv was emerging uh and very few especially women artists played it like she did so you could argue not only did she make some great rock and roll but she's a groundbreaking artist is she pretty much a shoe-in uh troy thinks she's a shoe-in so i'm gonna i'm gonna say yes he's looked at the uh, the handicap i think she made a, a, a string of three great albums in the late 70s early 80s and that she was a powerful working class woman's voice in rock and roll kind of like kind of like uh, not quite as aspirational as springsteen obviously but maybe like an eddie money type voice that's good you know um and and i think that string of hits that she had back then plus the sort of innovation she did with some of the video is gonna put her in good stead to get into the hall all right that makes me happy another woman in the hall (laughs) all right thanks mike we'll talk again in january when the class is announced and these people will be inducted in cleveland in may Okay, Laura, it's you and me wrapping up another week of news. What struck you this week is worth more conversation. I think the talk about the debate and the issues of flyover country, especially the gun issue, uh, is something we're going to be talking about a whole lot more, but it's it's really ripe for, for more discussion. For me, the Woodhill home story is, is a big one. It doesn't affect a lot of people, but that place makes a statement about what we as a society think of people in poverty. I'm glad it's coming down. We should be better than that. And I love talking about 70s and 80s rock and roll before you were even born. (laughs) I know some of the 80s, right? But I think with Woodhill Homes, maybe that will lead to um, other um, kind of uh, CMHA housing getting a redo too. Yeah, there's a a lot of it that looks like that. Okay, that does it for this episode. Thanks to everyone who joined us, and thank you for taking the time to listen. We hope you enjoyed it. This Week in the CLE is published on Thursdays wherever you get your podcast. We'll be back next week with another discussion of the news by the people who do the reporting. <laughs>